Training camp for the Seattle Seahawks is just six weeks away. Which sleepers should fans be keeping a close eye on heading towards camp? Dan Viennes of the Seahawks Forever podcast and I will be diving into that topic and much more on our Wednesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for our Wednesday episode. I got a guest host from the Seahawks Forever podcast. He's becoming a regular on our show, Dan Viennes the knowledgeable Dan Viennes. We're going to be diving into a number of off-season topics, and it's hard to believe, but we are just six weeks away from the start of training camp, and yet that means we are six weeks away from training camp. These next six weeks are going to be a crawl because that's always how it goes. The rest of the off-season is super fast. You get through the draft, you get through minicamp OTAs, and then you're like, wait, what do I do the next six weeks? But there's tons of topics to break down, including sleeper players to watch, investigating the draft class, looking at that defensive line that remains a top topic, and much more. So without further ado, let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on our Wednesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Every summer, teams convene for training camp, and they begin the process. They've already kick-started this process, but they trim the rosters from 90 players to 53. And Dan, what's, I think, an exciting development this year, I've always hated the tiered cuts after each preseason game, they eliminated those completely this year. It's just going to go from 90 to 53. And I think it gives all the players the best opportunity to show what they can do. And you don't have to worry about being a guy that gets cut after one preseason game, the third preseason game, you don't have to play any of your starters or even your backups that are going to be on the team. So looking at towards training camp, this is always one of my favorite questions to consider. And it leads down a number of different rabbit holes, but Who are the sleepers to watch for the Seattle Seahawks going into this season? Maybe the players that aren't on the radar, but should be. And we've seen guys like Joey Blunt and Josh Oniogo last year, Mm -hmm. both of them making the initial roster out of nowhere. It seems like every year there's a couple of them for the Seahawks on the offensive side of the ball. Who are some names that jump out to you that maybe, maybe you're just fascinated to watch and see where they fit in. Or you're thinking that might be a guy that nobody's talking about that has a chance to make this football team. Yeah, it's interesting. Whenever you talk about sleepers, um, you have to look at opportunities and where those are. There, there are some position groups on this roster that it's just nearly impossible to crack uh, if someone doesn't get hurt during training camp. And I, I think the best opportunities on this roster are wide receiver because sometimes the Seahawks will, will carry six, and, and there's even a couple of years that at the 53, they'll carry seven, and then there's usually some – uh, roster machinations after that and, and things get mixed around. So I look at wide receiver and I look at uh, two names. First of all, if you want, if you're asking me who the deepest sleeper on the entire roster is on offense, there is no other answer uh, other than John Hall, uh, wide receiver out of Division II Northwood College, or is it the University of Northwood? See, I don't even know that. It's Northwood okay. University. Make sure you get the NU correct. <laughs> but I do know it's in Midland, Michigan. 
Uh, I just assumed it was in California when I saw a small college in Northwood, but uh, tall, tall receiver looks like he has an NFL body. Six, three, one ninety four. actually can find some tape on him on YouTube. Um, he's had uh, the worst time staying healthy. Actually only played in a, in a three year span, played one game and that included the COVID year 2020 when he didn't play at all. Um, when he was on the field though, he was productive, averaging 24 yards per catch. When you watch him on tape, he's not an explosive athlete. He's a one-speed, long-striding guy, uh, but he's got some body control. He's got some separation skills at the line of scrimmage. He's got a little wiggle to him, even at his size. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you he's got a shot to make the roster, but if you're asking me for a sleeper and a guy that I'm going to be watching if he gets opportunities in preseason games, a guy like John Hall, uh, you have to root for a guy like that. And there's been so much talk about Jake Bobo and, and Landers as two other undrafted guys. And it just seems like that is a position, even after picking Jackson Smith and Jigba, that it always seems like there's at least one undrafted rookie that comes in that turns heads, at least gets on the practice squad. And maybe John Hall coming from the school that used to be in Indiana and Larry Bird spent a brief while there before going to Indiana State. Fun fact about Northwood University, it was actually in Indiana and then moved north to Michigan but John Hall, a name to keep a close eye on that maybe nobody's talking about. I think that there's more sleeper candidates, though, on the other side of the ball. And that's kind of been the trend the last couple of years. And I think part of it's just because Seattle has so much established talent on the offensive side of the ball. And there's been so much turnover this offseason. So yeah. looking at that side of the ball, who's this year's Joey Blunt or Josh Oniogo that comes out of nowhere as a D2 guy and ends up at least making the initial 53 and playing in a few regular season games. Who's that sleeper on that side of the ball to watch? I don't know about D2, but I look for guys that are unsung and overshadowed and and also where there's an opportunity. And we keep going back to the defensive line and especially the interior, those three interior positions. The, there's, there's you know, they drafted two, Cameron Young and Mike Morris, obviously there, but they usually carry six or seven guys at that position, so there's opportunities. I talked on my show this week about Austin Fiolu. Um, I don't know that he can be considered a sleeper because he was all XFL, right? But he played at Oregon in a big program. And what drew attention of uh, what drew my attention to him was Bob Condota name dropped him last week as a guy that the Seahawks like. But MJ Anderson for me is the guy that I really want to see in games. Overshadowed at Iowa State by uh, Will McDonald. Uh, but to me, when you look at tape and you read some of the reports, and Lance Zerline had some good things to say about his hand usage and his get off and how physical he is, um, hasn't played a lot of football. Started five games last year at Iowa State. And that was the most extensive action he's had. Three and a half sacks. Uh, but a physical guy that's just learning. And to me, what he looks like physically and athletically and on tape is kind of what the Seahawks were hoping LJ Collier would be. And if that makes you cringe as a Seahawks fan, it's all context, right? LJ Collier was a first-round pick at a position of great need, and there were heavy expectations on him. MJ Anderson is an undrafted guy who nobody knew coming out of college. But there's an opportunity there. And if he can be physical and, and be good against the run, there's a chance for a guy like that to make the roster. Yeah, and he also, I believe, had 19 pressures last year. So there, at least in limited action, was some pass rushing ability. He got the biggest signing bonus that they gave mm -hmm. to any of their undrafted free agents. Now, that doesn't mean the guy's going to make the team. In fact, I, I would have to go back and double-check this, but I think the last couple of years, the player that has had that highest signing bonus – hasn't lasted throughout the entirety of training camp even. This year is going to be different, as I said, going 90 straight to 53. But 
we'll see what happens. But Anderson's certainly a player to keep an eye on. And I thought when you were going with that undersized guy, maybe Jonah Tavai was going to be where you're going. But that is still going to be my sleeper. So I don't even know if should be a yeah. sleeper because the, the guy was point. so ridiculously productive in yeah. college. And I've mentioned this story a couple times on here already, but when I was at rookie minicamp, I had to, I seriously did double check my phone to see if my video was going two times speed because when I was watching him do some of the drills with his hand technique, it was a blur. I mean, I don't know that I've seen a guy go through those drills with faster hands than what I saw yeah. Jonah Tamai showing there. And he was a little banged up at their veteran minicamp. But it seems like that D-line, though, there are some opportunities there because there's so many question marks. They've had so many moving pieces. So maybe Anderson, who's a little undersized, but I think, you know, 6'3", I think you could get him up to 280, 285, no problem. They list him at 273. Yeah. Maybe he's a guy that you can develop as he gains more technique, fundamentals. Maybe in 2024, he ends up being a player to watch. And maybe they keep him on the roster early on because they're worried about other teams picking him up. When we continue here on our Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks, we're going to dive into a number of offensive topics, including what Dan thinks might be the ceiling for Geno Smith. We've gotten some interesting answers on that front, but I'm interested to see what the knowledgeable Dan Viennes has to say about number seven's prospects this second season as a starter. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This episode is brought your way by FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel as the NFL season quickly approaches because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets. If your first bet doesn't win, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure. As super easy to use. You can bet on everything from season awards to week one props to the exact regular season win totals for the Seahawks and other teams. Even with training camp still more than a month away, I'm excited to dig into season props such as NFL MVP, Rookie of the Year, and more. Regardless of what prop you choose, you'll get paid instantly if you win. There's no better place to bet on all the upcoming football action than America's number one sports book. So visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get a no sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NFL. You're listening to the Wednesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined by a special guest host today, Dan Viennes of the Seahawks Forever podcast. A special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. For our everydayers out there, I'll be rejoined by Rob Rang tomorrow, and the two of us are going to start diving into some individual position groups as we head towards training camp, we're going to start with the defensive line. And that is a perfect segue because let's talk defense here. We'll talk offense later in the show because I think that defense is really one of the critical things to look at for this football team right now. We know all the weapons on offense, Dan, but this is the first time that we've had to chat or we've gotten to chat since the draft. And I know when we did an episode before the draft, we did a mock simulation and you and I both picked defensive tackles very early in the process. Everybody expected that the Seahawks were going to do that. And then, of course, John Schneider decided, you know what? I'm going to throw a curveball because that's what I do. They went with Devin Witherspoon. They drafted Darren Hall in the second round. No defensive tackles until the fourth round. How surprised were you by that strategy and looking at the players they were able to get on day three? How do you feel about that strategy, the way that they ended up orchestrating this draft? 
classic Seahawks in that during the process, uh, I was nervous, scared, confused, didn't know what the hell they were doing, thought they had to have something up their sleeve. Uh, and then afterwards, when you look back at the process, you hear them explain it and you see just the, the total draft class. Um, I like it. I, I'm on record as saying how much I like the draft, but it, it, it made for some nervous moments, especially after the second and third round, just not addressing that interior defensive line. Um, I think context matters, and I think it, it had a lot to say, had everything to say about this interior defensive line class and that the lessons the Seahawks have learned about pushing for certain positions over the last seven or eight years instead of just taking value. And I know fans get tired of hearing best player available, but over time, over a large sample size, the good teams show that that's the way they do it. The Baltimore Ravens are the best example of this. They just, every single year, they they just, they don't make waves. They don't make a lot of splashy moves during the draft. They don't make a lot, they don't trade up and down a lot. They just sit there and wait for the draft to come to them and they take good players and then they figure their roster out before they get to the season. And I feel good about where they are overall. There's still some question marks, obviously, but the players that they did take, at the top of this draft, I think are so dynamic and so talented and so good that two, three years from now, when we, when we look back on this draft, we're not going to really remember the order these players were taken. We're just going to know that we love what Devin Witherspoon has become. And we know what Jackson Smith and Jigba has become. And those two guys I'm, I'm extremely confident in. There's some question marks about some of the others in their ceiling, but uh, it's hard to argue with the process because they have conviction in it. And, Time will tell if they're right or not, yep. but um, but this was the most fun draft process I've ever covered as a Seahawks writer or podcaster or watched as a fan. Yeah, I thought that the way things unfolded, I mean, this was the fourth year that I was in the draft room for the media members in the VMAC, and there was just a different vibe to this draft and having a top five pick changes everything. It helps. If you're on pins and needles. You know, if you, if you don't pick till 23rd or 27th or whatever, it's a much different process. But when you have two first rounders and you have a top five pick, it totally changes the way that even as media members that you approach everything. Cause you just don't know is John Schneider going to trade up. Is he going to trade down? Uh, did they draft a quarterback? There were so many storylines going on there that we weren't accustomed to. And the Seahawks didn't have to lose a bunch of games to get that pick either. They just had to have Russell Wilson lead the Broncos to very few victories. And they were able to get that pick. But everybody's talking about this defensive line. And, and I had Jackson Bevins of the Cigar Thoughts podcast on here last week. And he rated the panic level out of 10 at 8.5 for the defensive line. And it's understandable why you would view it that way because the nose tackle situation in particular, but they did sign Draymond Jones. They brought back Jaron Reed. I think Cameron Young could be a very solid nose early on for this football team. Mike Morris has a chance to be one of the steals in this draft for them going inside where I think his skills fit, but away from that defensive line, the interior of the defensive line, which everybody it's easy to nitpick is that being your weakness, but what is another aspect of this defense or another position group that maybe you still have some lingering concerns about coming out of this offseason? You know, I'm tempted to say linebacker, but the more I read about how much nickel they've played in the last couple of years and, and what they're going to do schematically, I just don't, you know, the days of seeing three linebackers, let alone even two uh, on the field are, are 
those days are dwindling and, and there's, you know, they have packages and, and I think it's part of the plan bringing Bobby back where Bobby Wagner will be the only linebacker on the field a lot of the time. Um, and so that mitigates some of my concern about linebacker. And so also this might surprise some people and I wouldn't necessarily use the word concern, but I think there's a lot, there's players that have something to prove at the outside linebacker position. We know what Uchenna Nuosu can do. We love, you know, most of us love what Derek Hall, uh, his upside and his potential. Um, Boye Mafe showed flashes last year. Daryl Taylor has shown flashes, but he's been the, the epitome of inconsistency. For this team to really thrive, you know, it, schematically, they just ask their defensive linemen a lot of times to just, to just do their job or their defensive linemen. So the outside linebackers can, can work. And they're the ones that have to make plays and get to the quarterback and pressure quarterbacks. It's the name of the game in the, in the NFL these days. And there's a lot to prove there. Uh, I'm not saying I'm concerned about it, but there's some, some guys have to step up and be productive at that spot opposite Nuosu this year if this defense is going to become what we want them to and what they need to if this team really has a chance to contend. It all goes back to the defensive line, even if you're looking at it from a three-four aspect with Ooh. the overhanging linebackers. That that is really the key for this football team. And you could talk the health of a certain player in the secondary too. Is Jamal Adams going to be coming back right? But they got Julian Love, so yeah. they've got that really good insurance policy. They draft Devin Witherspoon, so it feels like the back seven, especially if they're not going to be playing linebackers as much as they used to multi-linebacker since it feels like it really all leans on that front line the pass rushers and the interior defensive linemen so that begs the question here if they've got all these pieces they've added especially in the back half of their defense how hot is Clint Hurt's seat going into year number two on a scale to one to five one being yeah there's no warmth at all five being it's scorching hot I mean I think it maybe is a little unfair to put too much pressure on him, but at the same time, Seattle has done a lot to try to improve this defense. And I felt like the scheme was a big problem just as much as the personnel last year from a first time coordinator. God, that's an interesting question. And I haven't given it much thought because I, in my mind, I guess I've always thought, I mean, Carol's usually pretty patient with his guys. Um, and I thought hurt would have three years to prove himself in this position. But if this year, if, if, if the first eight games of this year looks anything like the worst eight games of last year and their inability to, to play the run or get to the passer, um, then I'd say it's a four, you know, I mean, all eyes are going to be on him. Pete Carroll will never be blamed for the failures of the defense. I, I, I think, well, there's a part of the fan base that will always look for a scapegoat, but I think, I think Clint hurt. His, his job is safe if this defense can be league average. If they can be middle of the pack, 15th, 16th, maybe even improve to 17th, 18th from where they were last year. Just be capable of keeping the team in game so the offense can do their work and not be a liability, then he buys himself a third year. If it's a disaster, sure, I'd say it's a four out of five. Um, what do you want to see schematically from him in, in terms of improvement? Because he, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt because it was his first time ever being a play caller sure. at any level. And there were a lot of move. There were a lot of moving parts last year. They brought Sean Desai and they brought Carl Scott and they brought some other voices. Um, you know, there was even talk before he ended up going to Minnesota that they were going to bring Ed Donatel in to be an advisor. And over, I thought that would have been messy and weird and, and confusing. And so hopefully, and Desai of course departed. Hopefully that gets tightened up. 
but the word that popped into my head when you asked me that question was, I want to see consistency. I just want to see game in, game out, that they're more consistent. Because what killed this team last year is you'd start to see, the analogy is a starting pitcher, right, who, who hangs in there for three, four innings and then just has the one crooked inning and loses you a baseball game. And they would have those moments within games and then they would have entire games where it just seemed like the Tampa Bay game where it just seemed like they didn't have a plan. Everything Tampa Bay did surprised them. They had no counterpunch to it. I just want to see some consistency, cut down on the explosive plays, and just give the team a chance week in and week out to win the game. That's all I want. And from my perspective, I just want to see players maximize with their skills, and that just keeps going back. I do think Jamal Adams' injury last year it put Clint Hurt in a tough spot because I do think they finally had, and this is just from watching training camp, Dan, it it felt like they finally had a game plan to really maximize his skills. And he looked really good the quarter and a half that he was on the field before he got hurt again. And so I'm just curious how all those pieces go together. If they get him back healthy and some of the new guys they've got in, it feels like the personnel maybe fits better with what they want to do. Maybe they're going to take a little bit of a zig there back to what they used to do. And so there is some intrigue. Now, on the offensive side of the football, mm-hmm. as I've mentioned a couple times already in this show, and you and I have, yeah, you're excited about this because there's just so much talent. There already was. This was a top 10 scoring offense a year ago, really no major losses. And then you add a Jackson Smith and Jigba. You bring in a Zach Charbonnet. You get Olu Oluwatimi, a player that I had a day two grade on. I don't know where you stood on that, but I, I thought he was a clear day two selection. They get him in the fifth round. It just felt like as exciting as the defensive picks were, it really seemed like looking back on this draft, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, it really seemed like John Schneider hit a home run with the offensive selections they made in terms of the value where they were able to get players. Well, I think the difference on the two sides of the ball is is, is on defense. They're still, and I think they will be until next year's draft, they're still kind of work. They're working from behind. They're playing catch-up. Yeah. Right. They, they had some major deficiencies there in the pass rush that they spent years trying to fix. And, and, and then the interior defensive line and even in the secondary. And, and now they're just now getting caught up to where there's only a couple of holes on defense on offense. They're playing from a uh, from a head. Right. They're playing with house money where that offense was pretty solid to begin with. The only glaring weakness, I would say, was center last year. I just think Austin Blythe second half of the season was just being physically beaten by other teams. And it really created a lot of interior pressure, which made, I think it contributed to Geno Smith not playing as well in the second half last year. They were able to focus on those couple of things and then just take best player available regardless of position. And that's what allows you to add a guy like Jackson Smith and Jigba, who I'm as high on as anyone. I, the more I watch him, the more I think this guy is a natural. I think he is a long-term perennial pro bowler. And I said it on my show this week and I'm surprised that I haven't gotten more kickback on this, and I've actually gotten quite a few people that have agreed with me, but it's a little early in the offseason to make bold predictions, but I think there's a good chance uh, Smith and Jigba leads the team in receptions. That's how high I am on him. And I think by the end of the season, we may look back and, on, and say that the Seahawks have the best young running back room in the NFL. And so those, those skill positions are loaded. And whereas last year at this time, Geno Smith was a question mark now there's some pressure on him, right? There's not just to repeat what he did last year, but he won't have any excuses. He's surrounded by not just dynamic talents, but there's depth there and there's there's multiple options. You're not just overly dependent on, on DK Metcalf gets hurt. They're fine. 
if Noah Fant gets hurt, they're fine. If Ken Walker gets hurt, they're fine. So Gino has some pressure on him this year. It'll be that's one thing I'll be watching. One of the storylines in the early part of the season is to see how he plays with heightened expectations. And that is a perfect segue into what was my next question here. And I kind of hinted at it earlier with Gino, but nobody saw except maybe Gino himself, what he did last year coming. Nobody saw him throwing 30 touchdowns. You know, maybe the accuracy, that was something that I thought maybe might carry over from the three starts that he had last uh, two years ago. But for him to put up the numbers, even in the second half with him not being quite as sharp. And as you mentioned, there were some other factors that played into that just away from him, maybe regressing a little bit. Some things broke down around him, but with everything that they have done, they haven't lost any key players. They've added some intriguing offensive linemen to the interior for that front line. They've added Smith and Jigba. You've got all your tight ends coming back healthy. They've got two potential star running backs on the roster, maybe three. I mean, Kenny McIntosh is a pretty good player, and I still can't believe he fell to the seventh round, but you've got all those weapons around him. If everything falls into place, and that's a big if, obviously, in the NFL, you got to stay healthy, you got to have guys develop, you got to have rookies contribute, but what does the ceiling look like for you with Geno Smith, having seen what we saw last year from him on a team that did have some flaws and some deficiencies with the way it was built around him? Yeah, I'm going to defer on this one and and steal, uh, borrow the opinion of uh, Kenneth Arthur, Seaside Joe, who I had on the show last week, um, who does the phenomenal daily newsletter, used to be the managing editor at Field Goals. He put a Matt Ryan comp on Geno Smith and and specifically compared him to the 2016 version of, of Matt Ryan that won the MVP. I have, once I realized and decided that what we were seeing last year was legitimate, I continue and consistently am as high on Geno Smith as anyone. And I've had multiple debates with people who think that there's going to be regression, that last year was a fluke, it was a flash in the pan. You don't play in this league for 10 years, get an opportunity to play every day like he did and be the guy and play as well as he did. The NFL just doesn't allow flukes. It doesn't over that large of a sample size. I'm a believer in the talent. What we needed to see last year was when – when given the chance to be the guy, do you make big-time throws? Under pressure, third and longs, touchdowns to win it. Can you get the ball into tight windows, under pressure, and in those moments? And we saw enough of that. That throw to, to DK to, to beat the Rams was as good as any throw ma- any quarterback made in the NFL last year. I think Geno Smith is a top-10 quarterback, and I think he's a guy that I think it's – I don't think he's ever going to win an MVP award. I think it would be it would be ridiculous to sit here and be that hot take guy and say he's going to but he'll be a top 10 guy and and I think there's a chance as much as I'm already looking at quarterbacks next year and we're already talking about how good the quarterback draft's going to be next year how deep it is how much sense it would make for the Seahawks to take a day two guy next year and kind of have that succession plan I think Geno Smith might be good enough to get another big contract with the Seahawks after this 3 years and be the guy Long term, I'm just I'm that much of a believer, especially now, given what we just talked about and uh, and the foundation they've laid for him. Yeah. And that foundation, we were talking about it on yesterday's or Monday's show on Locked on Seahawks here, that foundation that is in place for multiple years. I mean, they've got almost all of these guys under contract through at least 2024, if not 2025. And so Gino, as you mentioned, it puts more pressure on it. But at the same time he's going to be able to relax a little bit. Like, I've got all these guys around me. Hopefully, I'm going to have Shane Waldron for another season. I mean, if they blow up this year, Shane Waldron's probably gone. 
And then you got to worry about that offensive coordinator thing. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at the receivers, the running backs, everything else the Seahawks have assembled around Geno Smith, the offensive line is going to remain the area that has some uncertainty. And particularly when you're looking at the fact, Dan, that there could be four starters, as many as four starters that are first or second year players in week one. I don't think that it's out of question that Olatimi and Bradford could be starting for this football team in yeah. week one. And and I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. But what do you just think overall of the state of this offensive line, where things stand with Cross and Lucas going into year two and some of the new pieces they've added in the middle, Damian Lewis, year three at left guard. What do you think of that offensive line in terms of where the trajectory is at right now compared to the rest of this offense? I was glad to see them address center and guard in this draft in the way that they did with the players that they did, because I think for the first time, I think since Pete Carroll and John Schneider arrived, they've put together an offensive line group that's built for the long haul and, and they're set up for long-term success. And you said it, these guys are going to be contractually obligated for the next three, four years. They're going to have an opportunity to build continuity in this offensive line with young, big, physical, dynamic talents. And that's something they just never built the offensive line that way. They never gave it a chance. Russell Wilson must be so pissed right now when he sees what they're doing uh sorry can i say that uh yeah you're good to go <laughs> he you know imagine when he looks at oh now they do it you know i mean that was the joke last year is you know then they took charles cross with the ninth pick but but all joking aside they've done it the right way i think it took them a while to identify the style they wanted to play and the type of player they wanted to, to identify I think there was a lot of confusion about that in their scouting process and their evaluation uh, and even their teaching and coaching principles when Tom Cable was here. Um, a lot of draft capital was used on the offensive line. It didn't work out. It seems like they know what they're doing there now. They have a vision. And maybe of all these things that we've talked about, that gives me the most comfort as a Seahawks fan is to know that that offensive line has a chance to be together and grow together for three, four years before they have some big decisions to make you know, they'll have to start paying these guys. But until then, it gives them a chance to be good on offense every year. And I think Pete Carroll and John Schneider, they have finally got the pieces around them in terms of coaching and evaluation because they've got Andy Diggerson, who I'm incredibly impressed with, what I've seen on the practice field, just the way that he handles himself, what we've seen with the line, the, pro the progress these guys have already made, and Steve Hutchinson coming back as an advisor. I think that has been a huge part of me. He was in love with Oluwatimi, and it's not just because they both were Michigan guys. I mean, mm -hmm. I just think you're seeing a focus that is much different and much better than what it was when Tom Cable was there. And Solari, I think that there was just some butting heads going on. But Mike Solari has got a really good track record, too. It yeah. seems like they have been trending in the right direction there. And like you said, Wilson's probably not too happy about that in Denver. They're finally building a line here. Although I would counter-argue some of that issue was the quarterback, though, for a long time, too. I think that there's a little bit to both sides of the story. But before I let you go, Dan, this is the essential question. Now that the offseason is over, OTAs are wrapping up, mini camps over with, the draft free agency, all that stuff is done. We know what this roster is going to look like going into training camp, barring a stunning move to add a player that they have no money for right now anyway. How close is this team to being able to contend with the Phillies and the San Frans in the NFC after everything they've done this year? You know me well enough to know that I tend to lean towards the optimistic 
right? Glass half full, the positive. Um, I think there's an opportunity for this team to win 11, 12 games, challenge the 49ers for the division, and and be a team that can win a win a playoff game, maybe get to the conference championship game, um, if everything goes right. Those question marks up front on defense have to be answered. There's it's there's a non-zero chance that it's that it's going to come together and be glorious. And Cam Young's going to be. I, I mean, there's a chance it could all come together and look like the perfect plan. Most likely, there will be growing pains. There will be bumps along the way, and there will be issues. And I'm quite sure you and I will talk again right after the cuts are made to 53, where there's basically going to be now there's a a whole new wave of free agency created. And, and there will be opportunities to pick guys up there. Those question marks up front that cannot be answered for us for three more months um, keep me from getting too optimistic about this team. But then we touched on today. I think the offense is going to be good enough that it can carry this team through that early portion of the schedule, which is pretty favorable, while the defense catches up. So I think that's their seal. I think it's this team has the capability of winning 11, 12 games. I also think they're talented enough that there's almost no chance, in my opinion, that the wheels could fall off. I think they're a nine-win team at worst. That's how good I feel about this roster right now. But we obviously still have some questions to answer. So there you have it. Dan has them potentially being a contender if everything falls in line, but also you have a really high floor for this football team with the young talent that they've got, especially on the offensive side of the football. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. Make sure to follow Dan at Seahawks Forever and check out his podcast, Seahawks Forever Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode coming up on our Thursday show. I'll be rejoined by Rob Rang. We'll start diving into positional battles. What does Ken Walker the third have to do to make a second year leap and much more? You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday and thanks for listening. Go Hawks.